Welcome to Identity Matters, digital identity and the evolution of the internet, a special InnovationOz.com video podcast series brought to you by Ping Identity. From debating access to anonymity issues in online culture wars to fighting cyber threats on the commercial internet or in the delivery of government services, identity impacts everyone. In this series, we will speak to a compelling list of experts to trace the global online trends that have helped frame digital identity and to understand the cyber landscape shifts that have shaped identity access management practices and zero-trust environments. Join us as we explore the philosophical and practical sides of identity, the fundamental issue at the heart of the Internet. Hello, welcome to Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet, a podcast series Innovation Oz is producing in partnership with Ping Identity. Today, I'm talking to Ash Dickey, Vice President of the Sales Asia Pacific and Japan at Ping Identity, and Eddie Smith, General Manager Identity and Security at Bercent. Our topic today is no transformation without identity and achieving digital transformation success. Um, look, I don't know who coined the term digital transformation and where it came from, but it seems to be all we've talked about for a very long time. Maybe it's even started to lose some of its actual meaning. I wanted to start this, uh, if I could, uh, with you, Eddie. Can you, when we talk about transformation, digital transformation, what does it mean to, to you and how has the, the identity component wrapped itself into projects and how has that kind of tra- changed over time? Yeah, digital transformation means many, many things to many, many people. And we used to joke very early on that digital was dead as a concept, which is very awkward if you have digital in your title when I'm talking to you. Um, but ultimately, it could be customer-facing, it could be workforce-facing, it could be partner-facing. And it really is just the move from a more analog style of process, be that manual, be that paper-based, uh, to a digital or online, mobile, voice, whatever those different channels are, but really just transforming that process and take advantage of modern technology to do things faster, more efficiently uh, for organizations. How identities uh, impacted that, it becomes very, very apparent when you're doing any sort of digital transformation that uh, things need to talk to things and ultimately identity is what enables that communication layer, uh, be that from end user to server or be that server to server or mobile app to server or so any of those interactions. Identity really is that sort of uh, enabling uh, wrapper that enables those communications to happen securely. So I guess, uh, I mean, this, this is the thing. We talk a lot about digital identity these days in the last couple of years in particular. And, and Eddie, I'll, I'll start with you just just for a moment. What what is it the change in time that we're talking fundamentally about digital identity as the the platform layer for the entire process? Whereas there's digital transformation projects have been you know have been underway for a very long time as we know. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess uh, I guess the other challenge is while digital transformation is a very broad term, so is digital identity, and it can be everything from verifying my identity as part of a sign-up process so that I can um, get my credit card, or it can be the authentication layer, or it can be a provisioning and a governance layer for me into downstream systems. So identity transformation itself, or digital identity, is also a very very broad topic. But I guess what's really sort of brought it to the forefront 
is as people start to stop going into physical locations, we need a way to both validate my identity and assert my identity through ever what transaction I, uh, I'm performing and then have that layer its way down uh, the different stacks as different things talk to each other. Uh, so if I've got a mobile app, it needs to assert my identity to the app server. If the app server then talks to a partner site, those that flow of identity and that end-to-end flow of identity is, is what's really become um, important to people because it you know reduces risk process or, or exposure if I can operate in what I call a me context instead of a you context, which is a, a little more traditional. So Ash, Ash Dickey, Ping Identity has obviously been around for a long time, has been having this conversation for a long time. What's what's changed in the last several years in terms of that conversation, or you, have you just been banging the same drum the whole time uh, on on uh, these digital identity and digital transformation issues? Uh, we certainly haven't been banging the same drum. I think there's been a pretty rapid, rapid ev- evolution over the last five or ten years around what digital identity is and what people are using it for. Um, if we look at local markets, so things that we've seen in Australia and New Zealand uh, market, the biggest proponent we've seen for digital identity is really around finance uh, and the regulatory compliance that's been pushed on the banks um, or in, in implemented for the industry, I should say. And uh, we there was some good, uh, there was some interesting things that hit the media recently where there was a, a customer tried to withdraw cash because they'd forgotten their ATM card. Um, and that's a really good example of a use case where physical meets digital and had that digital experience been better put together, that customer would have been able to walk into the branch and say, I'm this person, here's my digital identity and interact with an ATM the same way. So perhaps they may not have needed to have that physical interaction in the bank had the ATM been able to link their digital identity to that cash withdrawal process. Um, so there's a really simple use case there of digital to physical, and that's where everything has evolved to, whereas I think five, definitely 10 years ago, but even five years ago, we weren't yet at the point that digital identity was so key to every interaction we have in our daily lives. So, and it is fundamental you know, fundamentally central to to my daily life, and I'm sure it is for yours as well, in, in a whole bunch of different areas. But in, in terms of adoption, uh, you know, across, um, you know, the economy-wide sectors and large companies, small companies, public sector, private sector, all of that, where, where do you think we're up to now? Like, I mean, we're, we're kind of deep into it, but there's a long way to go, isn't there, until, like, it becomes that sort of, frictionless uh, identity management that you talked about with the, with the ATM example? Uh, I think Australia's in a really inter- interesting place. We've had a few different uh, frameworks and, um, you know, national level programs that have taken off in the last five or ten years to really deliver on a digital identity. Uh, where we are now, I think there's some really interesting things happening in Australia is right at the forefront globally of being able to deliver some amazing uh, frameworks to allow interoperability of different kinds of digital identities for all. So what we will end up with is something where Australian citizens are going to have the benefit of choice and using verified credentials in meaningful ways that is within their control. And that, that within their control piece is probably the big differentiator from us and a lot of other nations, I think. Uh, Eddie Smith, I wonder if you... Do you want to speak to that? I'm sort of interested in whether people will, you know, by choice, uh, maintain several or many 
digital identities um, for different parts of their lives or whether they, you will make a choice and you will have one digital identity. What, I mean, what, what are some of the privacy issues um, at play there? Well, just simply the individual control issues. I, I think individuals inherently don't like uh, their worlds to collide in some cases. So um, we've put in uh, login with social credentials a, a large number of times for organizations, and invariably the take-up in some industries is significantly lower than the take-up in others. Uh, and for example, I don't think any of the banks have said, uh, we're going to let you log into your internet banking with Facebook, for example. So people don't like these sort of worlds to collide and they compartmentalize their lives. So health, uh, tax slash finance information, banking information, um, social media, telephony, whatever those different spheres are that people decide to divide will continue to, to probably like to compartmentalize. But uh, and, and I guess there's going to be an education process that's going to, uh, for people to understand that things like verifiable credentials, um, allow you to keep those sort of stovepipes of information, but, um, uh, over time, just because of the nature of distributed identity. But also when I'm authenticating, uh, it's how do we ensure that I'm passing the right information, only what the organization needs and that the, the organization that information is being passed to has the right lineage and retention processes on top of that. I think. That's where we'll start to see a change is in organizations at the back end is as they start to go, do I really need to collect it and keep it? I need to know it at some point. Sometimes I'm legislatively obliged to keep the information, especially I have a, a law enforcement requirement, um, e.g. the telcos. Um, so it's, it's, I think there will be a gradual evolution. Um, I think, you know, we, we've got pockets of brilliance in Australia, but lack of interoperability in a, in a lot of areas, right? So. It is still very stovepipe. While New South Wales is charging down the verifiable credentials path, their digital driver's license isn't um, MDL spec, so they're they're not up with the the Dash Five ISO standard. That's coming on their roadmap, but they went VCs first. Uh, we've got Melbourne who have followed New South Wales in a lot of similar way, or Victoria who followed New South Wales in a few similar ways, and they're now pushing down the the ISO path. Queensland went the ISO path. I think once the states all bobble up to that ISO level, then we'll see a lot more interoperability, which will then allow the, the growth of the solutions and we'll start to see more interesting use cases. But ultimately, uh, much like consumer data, right, the success of digital identity Australia is going to be on how do I use it, not who gives it to me. I can see you nodding vigorously through that answer, Ash. Um, if you want to... Very long-winded if answer. If you want to jump in there <laughs> and maybe uh, yeah. you know, give, give us a view from Ping. Yeah, sure. Thanks, James. And I mean, this is the world that Eddie and I live in. We do we deal with a lot of conversations regularly around how is one organisation or one agency or state doing things versus another, and and how do we get to that level that we've got interoperability in a common denominator or a common platform that everyone can work with. Um, the digital driver's license is such a great example where we've seen. Uh, New South Wales deliver on something many years ago, which was ab absolutely ahead of its time when they launched. Uh, it has delivered a really great experience to citizens of New South Wales, whereas other states like Victoria are still quite a ways from that level of uh, interoperability or integrating all of their services in the same fashion. Uh, and then, of course, we've got our federal government and, you know, across all states, how do we get everyone working together and developing a platform or platforms that are delivering similar or same experiences at the same time uh, and all coming, uh, maturing at the same rate, I suppose, is probably the best way to look at it. Uh, 
and there's no there's no simple answer to that because you've got obviously different budgets, different people in control, power, and then it gets into politics, which obviously impacts things pretty significantly sometimes as well. Can you just step me through? I mean, with many hundreds of millions of dollars into a federal government program on on this federated digital ID model. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just uh, talk me through where that program looks like it will finish up and does it require that the the states as eddie was saying bubble up to a kind of a a, a certain level um area of level functionality and credentialing uh and then the 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 federal uh system then trying to understand whether there is a federal oversight here that's necessary or whether the standards based across the other jurisdictions and perhaps even larger corporate IDs um, is enough. That is a great question, James, and I suspect it's been asked a few times in Canberra. Um, we would say there's, well, I think inherently Australians don't like being told, and I don't think federal government mandating a digital identity is going to be the answer here. I think we need to see a clear framework that gives us trust and the the benefit of convenience so give citizens a reason to draw down on something and use a platform is the key to the success of it where i think that happens and certainly this is in line with what ping identity been doing globally and where we're investing our time and effort in developing our products and and taking to market uh, a roadmap that we think is going to service our customers and their customers and citizens long term is Providing platforms that can inter- interoperability that can interoperate between each other by way of consent and authorization. So, really getting down to if James chooses to use James's identity, uh, digital identity that is from Canberra where he resides, and wants to use that to integrate with national health systems or national government agencies, or even to cross over into another state to access a government service while there temporarily. James needs to have the control and the convenience to be able to say, I authorise my digital identity to be used in this way from this period of time to this period of time and no further. So that that user journey of being a known, trusted, verified identity and having those controls to turn it off and on conveniently and easily is where I think we need to go. So does it need to be mandated? No. Do government agencies need to build meaningful platforms that can talk to each other? Yes. Yeah, it's quite a, I mean, perhaps it's not a, not for this discussion, but it, philosophically it's quite, um, it's a foundational element of government that it has a, a, a database of, of its known citizens. So, uh, you know, this, this model that you've just described is, is, is quite a different thing. So I can see why, um, you know, a federal government might kind of look at that and try and understand, well, what identity, like, do we, do we control passports, for example? You know, um, there are different but things that they would, would need to control. Fundamentally, the states have been responsible for what I call origination of identity. Each state with its birth, deaths and marriages department effectively originates identities uh, for the company at the very lowest sort of level. The only other source of identity documentation or source of identity in the country is DFAT at that point, foreign affairs and trade, with immigration cards and certificates. And when you think about it, those eight uh, areas are the sources of identity in Australia. Everything is then built on that inner 
uh, an ever-growing fashion, be that the little blue book my kids get when they went to school yeah. with uh, vaccinations. Then I get my first bank account. Then I get my L's. Then I get my P's. Then I get my tax file number. And then I get a passport because I need to go overseas. Everything grows, but everything comes back to that either that births, deaths and marriages or my immigration certificate as that fundamental source of identity uh, for Australian uh, residents slash citizens. So in that, the federal government represents a very, very small percentage of origination of that identity. But where they can give us something is, as Ash said, is defining how do those other seven locations talk to each other yeah. and how do we establish that trust between them? And they've done a good job with TDIF in terms of bubbling that up. Uh, in terms of, of defining that, uh, there were a couple of hiccups along the way with the double blind and introducing a 2.5 and a 3.5 uh, just to sort of make things a little bit more confusing. But it's gradually getting uh, towards the, that sort of level where it's usable. Uh, and I, I guess the main challenge is probably how do I integrate with it? Because the actual onboarding process is now quite difficult and full of friction. Become an identity provider or a consumer, you have to have quite a high level of trust. And this is where I think commercial equivalents of TDFs, like Connect ID or more globally like Gain, where they have a lower onboarding requirement because they pass less data, uh, will start to, we'll see the expansion of that. So they'll start to interoperate and we'll end up with what we happily call a trust fabric or a trust network, uh, as opposed to a, a single point. And I think fundamentally with distributed identity, you, you can't have a single point that rules everything, um, but it does come down to how you then layer and build those layers of trust. So let's talk about cybersecurity for a minute or security by design or in these digital transformation projects. Um, I guess this is for you, or for you to Ash, but uh, Eddie, uh, jump in if you if you'd like. I, I, I guess the cybersecurity landscape has changed dramatically, as has uh, digital identity. Given the evolution of both, given the, you know, the fairly high profile breaches, the, the active discussions around the amount of data that companies should be holding at any one time, personal data should be holding at any one time. So where are, where are we now and when will we be finished? I don't think it's ever going to be finished, James. That's, um, but it's a great question. I think, uh, where are we now? I think Australia is, in a great place as far as we now are looking more earnestly at the problem. Uh, even 12 months ago, I don't think Australia was really standing up and saying what needs to be done or what is a, a, a reasonable expectation of organisations, whether it's private, public, uh, Australian or international interests that are holding data. I think some of the high-profile high breaches um, we've seen have really expose some of the things that were probably left just to uh, everyone expected they were being done and they weren't, uh, it seems. Um, as far as what, where are we up to with security, I think everything we're talking about today around identity and all, all these, you know, what needs to happen to make a meaningful digital identity happen, that all has to build, has to be built on trust. And if you, you suffer a breach or if data is leaked or lost or it falls into the wrong hands, that trust evaporates. It's, uh, one of my favorite sayings. It's, uh, trust is earned in drips and lost in buckets. So if you suffer a breach because you don't have the right security controls in place, you can largely say goodbye to the good work that's gone into it often for years to get to the point that you're at. Um, I think that's, that's, 
Mm, legislatively, I think we're in a good place at the moment in Australia. I think there are some significant implications if people get it wrong, and I think that's a good thing for the citizens of Australia. How the enterprise, uh, the private and public sector respond to that now and build for it is the, the big challenge, especially when we're facing some economic hardships. So the digital identity piece of this, though, my, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but the digital identity piece should mean that uh, companies hold less personal information about you at any given time. Is that, have I got that, that right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely correct. Well, yes, they should hold less and it puts the controls in the hands of the, uh, the owner of that identity credential to say what should or shouldn't be shared for how long. Okay, so Eddie, in the projects that you've managed, the uh, transformation projects, but with, with a digital identity component, um, when you've gone into places to, to conduct a, a, an initial audit, like what, what are you finding in terms of the amount of personal, personal information that are held in a, you know, a, a traditional IT shop? Uh, it, it varies from the ridiculous to the sublime is probably the best way of putting it. We've, we've come across people who've, as part of the onboarding process for employees, they've kept copies of driver's licenses and um, passports or uh, utility bills or council rates just forever. And they've never had the concept of what do I need to delete? When do I need it to delete it? So if someone's worked for you for six months, 30 years ago, they've still got copies of, of those documents from 30 years ago. So it's, uh, you know, uh, not a great place to be because it'll be sitting on some sort of file share in an organization or preferably in some sort of secure document management system, uh, which it also does vary. Uh, and then as what we're finding is as people are migrating from their old traditional storage up to the cloud, what we can now do is use tools like Amazon's Macy or Purview from Microsoft to actually do analysis and go, why are you keeping all this information? We can start to identify it. Previously, a lot of these organizations just haven't known what they've got stored and where. They know they've got the HR bucket sitting over here. They know they've got the um, EKYC bucket or the KYC bucket for customers um, sitting over here maybe. But, you know, in a lot of cases, for example, uh, the banks that uh, were, were, I think about 10 years ago, they did an audit of the actual photocopiers they used to copy the, the documents and they found that they're all still sitting there in memory, wow. just a, a, a mere memory dump away in a couple of the branches because, you know, that some of those things, are, you know, different model meant that the process for clearing the memory wasn't able to be followed because it wasn't quite that easy or it just didn't work the way it was hoped. So it's, it, it really does vary. But what we're now seeing is because we can move these things into um, places like Amazon and places like, my, uh, like Azure, we've actually got tools where we can scan automatically and go, ah, oh, look, that's a credit card or that's... Uh, you know, a date of birth or a, a passport number or a tax file number, et cetera, and it shouldn't be there. And it then lets the organisations take stock of what they've got and go, right, this is what I need to fix. This is how I need to fix it. Right, and by fix it, you mean literally delete it? This is, I mean, it, it's not necessarily delete. This is part of the problem we have is like, so PCI as a standard, our payment card industry yep. standard, is got some excellent controls and it's really well defined how you manage credit cards, how you manage CCVs, how you manage all that information. What we don't have, is equivalent guidelines for PCI. So we've got the, you know, ASD do some great stuff with the Essential 8 and the Essential 8 maturity model. Yeah. It'd be great if we could come up with a personal identity, you know, a, a fantastic five or a terrific three or something like that for PII, which is tokenize, encrypt, uh, lineage, classify. I'm trying to get to five. Um, but uh, it, it's that style of thing where we, we actually tell people what to do with the data rather than saying that was naughty. It's like give people guidelines and, and indicate uh, 
solutions as opposed to just a, a stick to say, well, you shouldn't have kept that. Right. So, so if, you know, we look at some of the breaches, some of them had to keep the data because it's a legal requirement. Because as I said, you know, telcos have law enforcement requirements around interception and things like that. They can't get rid of the data. Right. But could they protect it better? Probably. And it's just like, let's help them with defining how they could do that, you know, um, as opposed to um, just saying that was bad. Okay. I'm talking to Ash Dissi, the uh, Vice President of Sales Asia Pacific and Japan at Ping Identity and Eddie Smith, General Manager at Vercent. Um, uh, Ash, if you, well, just as we start to wind up, I'm kind of, I'm interested to know where, uh, who's doing the most interesting work in your area in terms of adoption and, you know, application of, of ID. Like, what sort of market sectors are doing interesting stuff? I, you know, obviously finance and telcos and, you know, governments have, have, uh, have long been into this stuff, but what, what, what are the sort of emerging, um, sectors that are that are really embracing this yeah um, thanks I'll, I'll give you a two-part answer to that i often get asked who's doing security right uh, and i'm very quick to say the big four banks in australia they get it right they have got very robust frameworks they are governed by some pretty meaningful legislation and, and um, compliance requirements but they absolutely are one step ahead all the time and even when there are issues they respond super quickly and i think that that is the the gold standard that we have in in our line of sight who's doing really interesting things i think there are some really interesting things happening in the digital retail space so some of the major digital retailers across australia and the asia pacific region are doing some really interesting things right now uh and some of the um airlines are doing some great things so Really focusing on that user experience and making it easy for people to interact because that's that's ultimately what's going to drive consumption in a digital world. What is easy for me to do, um, I will latch on to. And for me personally, I think PayPal is another great example of something that has just taken over the world because it, it existed as an intermediary, but I trust PayPal as the thing for me to make any interaction online, for a purchase or subscriptions. I put it all in one place. I trust it. I've got an app. If anything ever interacts with it that is anomalous, I get a notification and I can stop it. That 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 is, you know, simplicity and security perfectly balances balanced for me. Okay, Eddie, I'm going to ask you that same question. Who's doing some interesting stuff? I'm also sort of interested in where um, SMEs sit in all of this. Like, do smaller companies kind of have they have access to the same tech? But they've got access to the same kind of ability to apply it. That's two questions. Um, so in terms of, I think, probably the most interesting uh, identity initiative uh, going on at the moment is actually Australian Payments Plus and the launch of Connect ID. Um, I think that's sort of going to wrap around TDIF. Uh, it's going to integrate with TDIF, but it's going to give the commercial sector a very lightweight way of leveraging digital identities. And it'll be interesting to see the use cases that come up and the use cases we use it for, be that cashless wagering in New South Wales or uh, online alcohol delivery in New South Wales when that legislation starts to kick in. Um, but it's just things like that where it's driving it, but also the, as Ash has sort of alluded to a couple of times, consent. I think consent is fast becoming a new battlefield or a new differentiator for some organizations. Apple have sort of placed their flag on privacy, uh, as a key feature. Um, and, and I think so those style of things, I think is where it'll be interesting over the course of time, but it's also where 
we're seeing a lot of movement and then how verifiable credentials comes into that in terms of distributed identity and sort of sort of erodes at that uh, online ecosystem as it were by uh, with the distributed ecosystem but i think that one's probably a few years away because we still haven't got the online version right so it's uh, it's how that gradual swell moves but i think connectdata is probably the most interesting uh, project at the moment both from a data holder or an identity holder perspective and an identity recipient perspective uh, second question was uh, how do SMEs play into it? Um, do you mean SMEs like me or SMEs like s smaller organisations or oh, software organisations? The Australian economy is sort of, well, you know, in, in sheer volume uh, is kind of dominated by, by smaller companies. Um, so in terms of, a, a, you know, yeah. digital identity being applied across the economy, they need to be on board. I'm just wondering, you know, where, where smaller companies are. Look, and, and this is part of the problem with things like the consumer data right and TDIF is the onboarding components for a smaller business. It's difficult to get the relevant security certifications, audits, etc. done. There's a, a large overhead, uh, overhead to participate in the scheme. Connectdata has lessened that and simplified it. Uh, and I think, you know, as they do that more or limit the data based on your certification, for example, uh, I think that'll happen. But it's, it's, it, it, in a lot of cases for small businesses, what does a verified identity give them? If they're an online alcohol retailer, huge amount, right? If they're a small super fund looking to sign up people or an insurance company, quite a lot. Um, but if they're, uh, you know, an online retailer, it doesn't actually give me a lot if I'm just selling t-shirts. Right. Right. So it's, it's, it, it really will depend on the use case and does it buy down risk for them or does it give a better user experience or what are those different differentiators that a digital identity is going to give them, uh, in those flows to remove friction and lower their risk ultimately. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to finish on a question that I hope, it, I hope it may well just open an entirely new conversation that might keep us here for a while, but. It's hard to talk about anything. Well, you, there's a couple of things, actually. You can't talk about anything in, in our sector without talking about skills on the one hand, but also asking about how AI will, you know, apply in, in this area. So w when we talk about digital ID and, you know, the, the trusted frameworks that you've described and, and the digital transformations that you've also described, with the evolution of artificial intelligence right now across, you know, Across everything, um, how, what sort of impact is it going to have in the work that you guys do? Ash. Okay. I was wondering if you wanted to go with Eddie or I. Uh, so AI is a very big question, James. Um, AI and, and some of the things we're seeing coming from a threat landscape is something we need to be building for in prevention and, and preparing for how do we really verify or authenticate someone when we're dealing with them in a, in a digital capacity. So this, is, this, again, increases the importance of verified credentials and making sure that we are authenticating James with something more than James on camera. So you, you know, AI has reached a point where you could be very much a synthesized James, not real James yeah. today. And um, we've got no way of knowing other than if we had a digital verified credential coming with you. That That's the difference there. Um, for us as an organization and delivering on identity projects as they are, there are more and more of them happening. They are getting bigger and bigger. Um, we've invested really heavily in a product that has been in market for about two years now. It's called Ping DaVinci or Ping One DaVinci. 
Uh, it was recently a finalist in an ARN Innovation Award, uh, so it's, it's really doing some great things. And it's a low-code uh, orchestration engine where you can design the flows and drag and drop how you want a user experience to look without needing a, a team of developers to go and do all that heavy lifting. So it's really accelerating uh, the ability to build and connect um, experiences for customers, for our customers to build for their customers, getting them time to value, time to market, and better experiences just faster. So that's so that's an application of AI in, in building out a digital, uh, sorry, digital ID framework um, across the business. Well, Eddie, let, let me ask you then: um, What about on the thre- on the on the threat side of that? Is there anything you know specifically you can see on the on the horizon in relation to AI and digital ID that's either going to need a, a change of tact or more thinking? Yeah, I I, I, uh, I I was looking at something last week, and um, I've decided to remove my voicemail greeting. Uh, because apparently the new engines only need eight seconds of your voice to uh, be able to synthesize it accurately, which means if you're using uh, voice biometrics, it's kind of not as valuable as it was about two years ago. Uh, so I think things like that will be problematic where we have historic, you know, my voice is my password, verify me style of uh, interactions. That those will become less uh, useful or the threats surrounding those will become uh, problematic. I think also where we use behavioral analytics, if the AI knows or the bad guys knows we, we use AI, uh, behavioral analytics, it doesn't take much to ask an AI to make it match the other AI's behavioral analytics. So we'll get into that battle of who AI is more human. Uh, I personally think I would fail the Turing test, so um, the AI is already doing better than me. Um, but it's I, th- I think those sorts of things will be interesting from a threat landscape, but I think... Um, it, it, it's also got great benefits for us. So, you know, uh, a lot of the analysis work we have to do to onboard new applications into identity ecosystems will be able to be, uh, will be able to feed that into learning models, uh, uh, language models, sorry, and, and have them feedback how we would ease or streamline the onboarding for those applications. So we can move a lot, remove a lot of the uh, administrative friction from um, uh, a lot of the use cases, which will then onboard more applications to the ecosystem, then which inherently then makes it more secure as long as those threats I mentioned don't get too advanced. Um, but look, it's, it's, you know, uh, AI is interesting. The language models are, are interesting and it's, it's really how can we use them to be more efficient and optimize ourselves and optimize some of these things that are normally difficult and trawl through hundreds of pages of documentations or standards to determine compliance. Uh, but yeah, we'd be naive to think that the bad guys haven't already uh, started working out how they're going to use them to bypass the controls that we've spent months training. All right, we've been talking to Ash Dippy, Vice President, Sales Asia Pacific in Japan for Ping Identity, and Eddie Smith, General Manager, Identity and Security at Vercent. That was a uh, very interesting conversation. Thank you both very much for, for joining us. We could have kept going for some time. Um, uh, that was Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet, brought to you by Innovation Oz and Ping Identity. Thanks, guys. Thanks, James. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet video podcast series brought to you by Ping Identity. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit pingidentity.com.